Hello everyone and welcome to Primrose Light. You're here with me, Roshni, and today I'm really excited to be joined by a pilot. Uh, I'm joined by Rohan Waggle and to introduce Rohan, uh, Rohan is a North Londoner and he is half He's half Indian and half Maltese, which I think is quite an interesting mix, and grew up and was educated in Hertfordshire. He completed his A-levels in 2003 and was inspired to go on to do a degree in human genetics at UCL. However, he always, in the back of his mind, wanted to be a pilot, having done some flying whilst he was at university, and then decided he was quite committed to make it a career when he graduated. As such, he went on to join a British-based flying school in 2007, where he did the basic flying phase in New Zealand and moved there for 18 months. In 2009, he completed the remaining bit of training back in the UK and in 2010 got his first job flying for EasyJet. He was based in Bristol and then Toulouse. Uh, He left seven years ago and is now flying long haul, Uh, albeit not much recently, uh, at British Airways based out of Heathrow. So I'm really excited to have Rohan here with me today. Thank you, Rohan, for making the time. Um, It's really, you know, fab to have a a pilot. So it's great to see Primrose like getting some new new people uh, with some new vocations. So talk to us a bit about your love of flying, you know, your background, uh, obviously doing human genetics and then going on to do something quite different. Talk to us a bit more about that, please. Yeah, the genetics makes it a bit random, but um, I've always wanted to be a pilot. I think most of my friends and my course in my job, it's kind of, I really can't say it's a vocational job, but most pilots kind of want to do it from the age of three, four, for some reason. It's one of the things we can't explain. Um, so yeah, genetics was a, um, it's become a part that you have to get across strict medical. You only get the medical when you pay, pay the money and start the training. So you kind of need to know beforehand if you can do it or not. So I thought if I can't do it, I'll do a degree, and if I don't get my medical, I'll go into genetics. Um, I said to myself, my final year, you know, if I like this enough, I'll stick with it and do a PhD. I did like it, just not enough, obviously. Um, and so, yeah, 2007, took the plunge, quite a lot of money, but um, decided to leave England for two years, head over to New Zealand, um, and that's it. And the whole course is like an integrated course, so it gives you licenses on the way, so it's structured, so it's like, yeah, it's place. And then at the end of it, they push you out with a license ready to go, uh, which is 2009, and as you know, the world fell apart slowly. So um, my industry is the first to go and the last to come back, as we're seeing at the moment. Mm. Um, so yeah, waste the year and then finally got a job when things picked up here. Fab, fab. And, and so you obviously, uh, you, you did in 2009, you moved over to, to New Zealand, was it? In 2007. Sorry, 2007. So I literally had the summer off and then they said, right, straight away, off to New Zealand. Um, so it's a bit of a weird philosophy. They wanted a, a country with the same weather, um, and the same kind of flying conditions as England, but they didn't stick it. They went to New Zealand because it's a bit more, um, it's a bit more predictable. So when you first start flying, you're not allowed to fly in clouds. Um, so today, for example, the private pilots won't fly. Flying. So you kind of need to that basic training, the place where you've got very predictable weather for a certain time of year. So New Zealand, unlike here, has really good flying seasons. So in the mm. summer, you know, you can do as much flying as you can. And even in the winter, it's quite clear and cold. It's um, so we did that, and then 2009 I came back, and then you know, I said, finished everything off down the south coast, in the south mountain of Bournemouth, um, and that was that bit. And then I said, waited for the next bit, and then got taken on by, uh, by EastJet. Fab. And so just unpacking that a bit more, I mean, your experience when you were going to train um, in sort of that period of sort of 2007 to 2009, obviously you, you, New Zealand is such a beautiful country and it would be lovely to know and for the listeners listening to understand, I mean, was it 
was it just sort of you working for 18 months developing the training did you get yeah. to enjoy the beautiful country what sorts of things did you cover as no, part of the training my, my flight school as good as it was kind of it ran a place like a secondary school so every day at five o'clock you get like a roster for the next day and only then you found out you were flying a lot so i've had three weeks off but i didn't know until the day before so the problem with that is you can't actually do it Plan. not that oh. leap because it's an intensive course not actually that's so I went to, you know, the other side of the world, 12,000 miles away, one of the most beautiful places on earth, and didn't actually get to go anywhere, which is a shame. However, when you fly, you fly across the islands, and they are absolutely beautiful. They're like kind of other world. And I don't know if you must have seen a film called The Rings. There's a reason why it was filmed there. It's because it's such, it is like another planet. It's an um, incredible place. Scenery, mountains, absolutely everywhere. You know, very outdoor country. Quite small, um, but beaches, everything. It's just incredible. It's absolutely fantastic place. Not a place I particularly say... As London as you probably want to grow up in, because there's not a lot going on there. Mm. Um, it's a very much kind of time and place, but it's um, it's definitely a place if you haven't been, absolutely have to go. I'd recommend it to anyone. Just take period town, just just say it's just a bit far away. Yes, and it's on my top list of places to go. Um, but uh, I will certainly most definitely ask you as to where the best places you've you've travelled to. But we'll we'll do that later in the podcast. So, I mean, for those of us like myself who have no real sense of what what it is that a, a pilot actually does to get to that that point where he's he's flying or she's flying the plane, talk to us a bit about that journey. What does it actually involve? What are the steps? So imagine like a. Um... Like, well, for example, or anything to become qualified, you need basic levels and you, you advance up with the undergrad, master's degrees, the essential. So the first license is, is just to get a private license, which means you can fly um, small plane um, for fun. But actually get paid to do your job, you need another license. So the first license is called a private pilot's license. So that's the kind of small planes you see on a nice day, you know, as, as a side note. And once you get what's called the CPL, the commercial pilot's license, then legally allows to be paid. So you're not actually allowed to be paid. So obviously as a pilot, we like to be paid for our jobs, most people do, so that's the second license which you have to get. And once you do that, then you go on to um, a third race, which allows you to fly in cloud. So, well, or at least this, physiologically, if you're in the cloud, it's a bit like when someone covers your eyes up and tells you to spin around, you actually can't tell because you, you lose your visual cues. So the muscles in your ears get completely confused where you are. And in a plane, that's very dangerous. You can't tell <laughs> which way it's up. Your brain's playing tricks on you. So you have to learn to fly completely on the instruments in front of you without any visual reference. Uh, which like like today, we've been doing commercially quite a lot as well, because it's quite a cloud base, it's quite reasonable. Um, so once you get that, then you come back to the UK like I did. Um, and then you also, this is all what they call single pilot stuff, so up to now, you're being assessed constantly on your own. But commercial operators, there are two or three pilots, so then you actually have to be taught how to fly. And that sounds quite silly, but you actually have to be taught how to fly with someone else. Um, like we do on a daily basis, and that in itself is actually separate racing because it covers a lot of the human factor stuff that actually aren't that obvious at first. So it's about how to interact with other people and crew, cabin crew as well, and put those all together with all the licenses you have. And once you've got that, you have you're ready to fly anything. But every time when we fly, we actually attach to a specific type of aircraft. So you probably heard Airbus, Boeing, they're the two main um, manufacturers in the world. But you can't just jump without set of licenses on any plane. You have to be trained specifically for that one aircraft. So I can only fly the one aircraft I fly. So my license is only valid for a year. So every year I have to renew that license for mm. that specific type of aircraft. So I can't just flip tomorrow into another one or you know go go in and go and do whatever. So once you finally get that, and that takes about three years, then that's it. That's when I'm starting way up to finishing to become a commercial airliner. And then you'll attach that one airline on that one plane. And if you want to go to do another plane, you have to do the eight week course again for that specific aircraft. But your basic licenses are always there. But then the attachments you have to kind of 
Wow. And so if you're, if you have to retrain, as it were, will the, the new um, company provider pay for you to do an eight week training? And yes, yeah, yes. so, but the and, year, because, you know, they're quite expensive. So to put into perspective, the whole blind training course is about 120 grand, um, which is a huge barrier to entry to a lot of people, understandably, because, you know, it's, um, I was very lucky in 2007, um, they were given unsecured loans because they were so confident that we were going to get to the top. And then 2008 came when we reviewed the banking system, they realised, you know, giving everyone 120 grand, no guarantees, that's, that's stupid money. So then they made it secure. The problem with that is that people now kind of have to secure against their parents' houses, which is a real shame because, you know, you make this decision when you're 18, 19, and you're asking your parents to basically, most people have just paid off their mortgage, now you're asking them to take a huge chunk of money yeah. out of that. So when you get through that, rightly so, the airlines will then cover the cost of any other training that you have to do. Interesting. Because um, otherwise the job would just be pointless. No, absolutely. And then the the yearly um sort of um kind of continuation that you can practice uh, or fly is that sort of on on the, it's like a test that you have to do or you yeah, once you do like yeah, yeah. So the um the government body in the um, UK CAA Civil Aviation Administration basically sets criteria. So like any like the legal body, I think the bar, yeah, ACA, yeah, the accountants administration, they all have like a legal framework which their followers or employers have. So we just set standard every so often. So we have a set of criteria that we have to meet every year, and then we're going to a simulator, and then we test it on those. And if we pass it, that's good. If we fail it, then they take our licenses and say, we'll do it again, and you're legally not allowed to fly until you've done that. Wow. Quite a lot of pressure, but at the same time, it's stuff you, it's stuff you have to do. It's part of the job, isn't it? Yeah. It is. And I guess it's such an important job, uh, kind of having people sort of um, well-being, and you know, lots of people... Uh, you know, on flights, perhaps not right now, but but uh, certainly um, in a normal in normal sort of life. So, you I mean I mentioned and, and I sort of read for people that you trained with EasyJet and now you work at BA. Talk to us about sort of your experience being at EasyJet, which is obviously a bit more budget, um, bit more of a budget airline. How was that sort of compared to BA, which perhaps has turned a bit more budget over over the years? <laughs> but but it'll be yeah. good to know. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So the first thing I'll say. Um, the terms of budget applies very specifically to the product that you get as a customer. What it most definitely doesn't apply to is the training that you're Because um, I think a lot of people have this kind of notion that you know, if you're a legacy airline, you're, you're safer, or you're, you're then, then a low-cost airline. But actually, it, in a way, the training needs to be better for a low-cost airline because they take people like me, who've never flown. Um, you know, we're flying four flights a day, you know, lands at three, four in the morning, all these kind of things. They are legacy airlines. So, um, in terms of standards of training, the, the, the lower cost airlines tend to be very, very, I'm not saying bigger airlines are bad, but they have an extra layer on top of them because we just don't have experience. So when I went to EastJet, I had to BA, sorry, I had seven years of flying. That seven years of experience because I didn't have an EastJet. And EastJet training has to compensate for that. Because at the end of the day, I'm, you know, I'm still flying more planes, right? Um, but in terms of the two, they're very different. Um, all the stuff you see, you know, the stereotypical stuff you see about pilots all happens in, you know, legacy airlines, the whole kind of cash and stuff like that fun times and beaches, that's all the legacy stuff. Um, EasyJet is very much it's a fun job, but it's very much a job. Um, you know, most people have flown EasyJet, and you know, when you land somewhere 25 minutes later, that plane needs to go back to go somewhere else. So it's very much like, you know, go, 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 go. You don't get off places, you know, nice places. You just do the job and you get home, which is good fun at the beginning because you need to build up experience. Um, but it's very tiring in time. So you've got days, six days a week, 30 years is um, which is one of the reasons I came to to be a so we've got all different kind of lifestyle protection further on at um that's easier. And the same goes to the other local airlines, which I won't mention because I'm not sure if I'm allowed to, but everyone knows which ones they are. 
So, um, but yeah, I mean, that's the main point is, you know, both possibilities definitely make a consumer. So, not a white safety or free trading one. Fine, fine. And that makes sense. And I mean, you know, you, you sort of touched on the fact that you were doing lots of flights, you know, being at, at EasyJet, you were doing lots of flights, sort of six days a week, etc. I mean, talk to us about the, the work-life balance of a pilot. I mean, is there such a thing? Do pilots have a work-life balance? Yeah, yeah, kind of. So, I mean, airlines are three, six, five days year industries. They fly every single day. Um, Christmas bank, they, you know, the social structure of the year doesn't make it it's just another day that you can fly. Yeah. So the fact is, a bank holiday or a weekend is, you know, um, and particularly in the summer when we want time off, everyone else wants to be away. So we actually work harder when the rest of the world is actually uh, tearing down. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's it is tough. Um, I think that's one of the biggest downsides of jobs, you know, birthdays, friends' birthdays, big events, weddings, very much at the mercy of, of your employer. Um, you can take slight days off in advance, but it might be one or two, um, which is not really enough. So, you know, and your annual leave is published a year in advance. So, you know, you see someone says to me, oh, do you want to go out next weekend? I'm working. Oh, nothing I can do. I can't change it. Mm. Can't call the sick. You just, you know, you have to miss it. So it's it's difficult, but then you have that. Everyone knows that when they go into the job. And everyone, you know, every, every job has its downside. Right? Um, you probably know as a lawyer, I mean, some of my friends were lawyers talking about things or the warning every one day, especially if there's a deal going through, and you know that's just collateral for the job, right? Um, but you still enjoy it, and that's you still do it. But um, yeah, it's probably the biggest thing is that work life balance. Yeah, no, that's quite tough. That, that that that's very tough. And I guess FOMO, you can't you've got to have a bit of a thick skin, you can't have this fear of missing out because uh, you'll never probably fly if you if you did in a way that yeah, I guess yeah, that's exactly. exactly. Uh, but, but the flip side, you know, it is quite nice. I mean, every day is hot Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You want to go to the gym, there's no one there. You want to go to the shops, there's no one there. And you can do everything that takes you three hours a weekend and half an hour. You know, you're not, there's not traffic everywhere. It's, it's just, you're, you're taking out society, which is, as it's downsized, it's also quite Absolutely. And I mean, I guess, you know, every day will be different. You know, you're flying around different countries around the globe, you know, from day to day, week to week. And I think, like you were saying, you know, you'll be working with different flu, uh, flight flight crews and meeting passengers and city residents so I guess your exposure to life will be quite different to you know the average lawyer or, or person sort of yeah. um in, a, in right. an and office. Even as a lawyer you know you experience things that other people don't mm. um and you don't you know they're, they're good things you know sometimes you take good things out of bad situations and you know you see what they are and it's just a slightly different thing that you can say you've seen that you know, someone, yeah. else, someone else hasn't right yes I think it's safe to say though Rohan you've got a, a very nice office with a view <laughs> yeah, I do, yeah. It's um, it is, it is, yeah. I can't deny that. Um, you do get some fantastic views. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, everything you see is from very high up, and this is up. You know, you see everything: the northern lights. You see, you know, flying over the Alps. Yeah, you know, so some things just never go old, right? Um, flying over the Alps when it's completely covered in snow, or you know, wherever you want to go, you're flying over west coast of India, or up through the Hindu Kush around the Himalayas. You know, it's, it's incredible. It is, and, and it's panoramic. So and um, yeah, so I think probably one of the best things about the job is, is you, because by you know, definition of the job, you're always higher than everything else, literally. Uh, but even you know, for the times in New Zealand, even when you're on the, the, the mountains, the views are absolutely incredible. When you go commercial aviation, you go a lot higher, and you just see things just, you know, like I say, flying across the, uh, the Alps, flying through the Himalayas, and you see everything in absolute panoramic vision. Um, and I can confirm the world is round, it's not flat. 
and um, it just everything when you see the coastline when you're far enough to fly over the UK you can actually see you know the definition of the coast and it's, it's actually it is fantastic it's a very we're very lucky to have it um, since 2011 passengers on the islands I think so it's a shame because I love it if everyone else could share that with us but unfortunately they can't like they used to um, but uh, yeah it's, it's one of these things when, when, when you feel like moaning about a job you just say actually it's um a lot, a lot of mm. And not to dwell on the point, actually, I guess I am curious to know, though, uh, you mentioned, obviously, as you mentioned, 9-11, um, mm. uh, from a safety perspective, have you found that it's just shifted as a, an industry since sort of that, that sort of historic yeah. sort of change in the world? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, well, September 11th completely changed the industry, um, and actually not just September 11th, but also the um, attempted or successful terrorist attack since. And every time the industry, something happens, the industry has to react, it has to change, and it has to adapt to that. Mm. Um, so September 11th was the biggest one. Um, we had an open door policy before then, where people just started to watch us all come and see. Yeah, I've done it not, myself. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you exactly appreciate it. But now we've, um, we've got a door, which is the bank can take, you know, hand grenades and shotguns. That's actually how it's tested. We have the old shotgun, see if it caves in, and put a hand grenade on the floor, and it has to basically take, it has to be, you can't, you, you can't get through it, basically, that's the whole point. Um, so it's very, very strong. So, um, Unfortunately, you now have that between us, so it is it's sad. Um, but yeah, every other kind of attack was one where they tried to put, it was a full attack by MI5 and the American CIA, and they, they actually tried to put explosive in little bottles. And they were going to take a meter. Do you remember the drink aspects when you had like the, mm. like, they basically siphoned that out, put the explosives in, so that the top was still unbroken because I never checked whether the lid's broken. Yeah. And they were going to put six on there that were going to detonate across the Atlantic at specific times. So that when the first one went off, the last plane would have been too far across the Atlantic to actually turn back. And it would have been probably the biggest death toll we've had in the industry. But it was spoiled. And I don't remember the 100 mil restriction came in as a result of that. Yes. So because of that, you now have to take less than 100 mil liquid because that's the level they deem enough to make a bomb. Oh, that's why that, why it's specifically yeah. 100 mil. Exactly. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, people put bombs in their shoes, which is why sometimes you take your shoes off for a scanner. Because you know people try and they, they always try and get around the, the things in place. Unfortunately, in our job, it's a pain because for the point zero 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 one percent, the rest of us have to be you know sacrifice this ridiculous procedure through airport security. Mm. You know, it's horrible. No one wants to do it. But it's uh, you have to. You have. You can't get one person through. And um, you've got to do it just as much as all as all of us, I guess, haven't you? Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah, and we do too. And sometimes we're treated with more suspicion, which actually I kind of can understand in a way. Um, so yeah, it's sad. It's. Um, it's still a great job, but you know, the, the world environment does change things, and unfortunately, you, know, you have to you can't you have to react to the dangers out there, right? You can't mm. just plod along that far and happy, so to speak. Well, speaking of one danger, maybe it's a time for me to ask you about climate change, which, as you know, is a topic close to my heart. I mean, I okay. guess I'm guess I'm curious to know, sort of, from your perspective, you know, you you sort of described some of the beauty that you've seen along, you know, the, the time you've been a pilot, and I'm just curious to know, have you kind of got a view on kind of climate change and um kind of flying and and have you noticed anything kind of in your experience um in yeah, terms so, of the landscape yes yeah, so, so i've only been flying for 11 years so in the grand scheme of climate change is still probably not long enough for me to visually see it outside of the theory of knowing it's happening um i have noticed the last few years when i was short all that you know the apps in particular the snow looks like it's either coming later or ending earlier uh, normally March April used to have a lovely dump of snow, but it looks like it's getting a bit thinner a bit. So I, I don't know that's anecdotal, that's just because then you do get you just naturally get warmer years than others, that's not necessarily climate mm. change. Um, because we don't fly to the Arctic around the Arctic, I think if we did, we see the biggest difference in you know in the polar regions. Um 
but I haven't, I mean, to be fair, I haven't done longboard anything for two years. Mm. And one of that was in COVID. So I think when I start to go further destinations, you do fly very close to the Arctic Circle, Antarctic Circles. I think I'd probably be able to compare them. Um, and I have no doubt that over time I will see. That's interesting. No, and that's a true account. I'm just curious to know because they sort of say like a return flight from London to, to Sydney would emit sort of five tons of carbon dioxide. And obviously, it's a huge, yeah. as you know, there's such a huge pressure on us to um, be much more conscious and to obviously emit less CO2. And I guess certainly some of the reading that I've been doing um, sort of over the last few months has suggested that people will still travel and um, but obviously business travel will reduce, but people will travel for um, longer, um, fewer holidays. That's that's the sort of suggestion. I mean, the, yeah, the industry, again, is reacting to it because it's in, it's in its own interest to move the demand of its customers, right? And, you know, there's so much political pressure that planes can't fly and might as well want to have a business. So, I mean... They are changing the new engines or the new generation aircraft. They, they quote they're up to forty percent more efficient. Yeah. Um, but then my car broke, so I get sent by master gallon for So you know it's 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 probably a good 30 percent for the newer engines, which is still good. Um, they're looking at electric engines, all these kind of things. You know, um, so, so the industry is is changing. Definitely. Um, but I think overall, I mean, aviation is not I'm not saying it's a red herring, but it's a bit of a misunderstood thing in terms of climate change. Um, you talked about a flight to Sydney. Uh, well, a flight to New York and back uh, has the same carbon equivalent as a quarter pound. So, if anyone has a quarter pound hamburger, so I think sometimes you don't get wrong, but you know every industry and every sector needs to look at this. But definitely, you know, aviation is one point nine percent, not total carbon emissions. No, um, you're right. You're right. You're right. And I think um, it, it, you're, you're absolutely right to say it is a bit of a red herring. I think it's a, it certainly emits a huge amount of CO2. And I don't think people deny that. That's just sadly, mm. you know, that's an inconvenient truth. But I think you're, you're right to say that there are other things that contribute to it more. But I think um, it's interesting, though, because as part of, sort of the, the sort of reading I was doing about it, just because I was quite interested, it was saying that short haul flights just don't reach the same levels of altitudes as long haul flights, where the contrails are produced and the carbon sort of carbon levels are more harmful. Um, and they were saying even like flying at night has a different um sort of impact because the and and you'll you'll perhaps know this more sort of being probably being far more sciencey and and far more sort of um sort of in 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 light with with physics but it was saying about um when we fly at night it can impact the plane's contrails and apparently the warm warning warming effects of contrails is doubled at night because they continue to trap heat from the earth but they don't have they don't reflect the sun's rays back into space as they do during the day okay so, oh, you know what? i didn't actually know that so but, uh, yeah there you go you know that's something every day yeah. um but I guess, you know, how do you get around that? Do you have government interventions that limit the times, you know, you fly? Or mm. The problem is aviation is global, right? And it's always dark somewhere on Earth. So yeah. you can't, you know... You, I mean, France have done a good thing lately. They said if you um, if you can get somewhere within two and a half hours, you're not allowed to fly. Because <laughs> if you can get somewhere on train within two and a half hours, the very mind they have the TGV, which is incredibly quick, you don't have something like that here. Um, then maybe that will come into the UK. Um, I think last... Before COVID, there were 68 flights between London and Manchester a day. You know, that's clearly a bit silly. I can do it with that many. Well, that's it. That was sort of something so, I was curious to ask you. I mean, I guess with us sort of rebuilding back better once COVID um, sort of clears up and people do start to fly again, do you see like the number of these flights reducing? And um, so, therefore, you might not have you know, 63 flights going to Manchester. You might have, I don't know, 20. 
And maybe, I mean, again, it's all driven by demand. Mm. Um, and I think I think there are two things. People want to travel across, the, even within the country. Right? So maybe they're in something like 12 flights a day to Edinburgh and Glasgow. Lots of those are business. So like the first and last flights are literally commuting from London up and down to Scotland because you can. Um, I think the other factor, though, is, you know, it's a question of economics. And a train to Manchester could be two, three hundred quid. Well, I've done it. It's like, you know, train to Glasgow from the London terminus is two, three hundred quid. A flight on my airline to Manchester back is 38 quid. Yeah. So how, how do you, you know, how do you justify to the consumer? Mm. Yeah, you know, at, at what point does their climate change consciousness have a limit? And it does. And would you kind of spend another 300 quid just to say, you know, you didn't, you didn't take the train? Yeah, um, no, it's a concern. Um, so it's, it's, an, it's a real tough, I think governments, you know, across the world have to come together. Yeah, and I think um, you're right. But I, I hope they don't do it. As I said, it, it has to be proportionate. Mm. Um, and for 1.9% of global emissions, don't need to work decimating the industry because it's not just my own. I'd say it's not just my job, it's the entire um, economy of Hounslow, it's the entire economy of Sussex, Parcel Sussex, Capital, Luton, Manchester. Um, it's, it's a difficult balance, it's a very difficult balance. Yes. Um, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. It's going to be very interesting. Yes, um, I agree. I agree. One to one to watch this space, and I think you're right. I think we'll just have to adapt to a new way, and who knows? We'll have like you're saying more electric planes, so that yes. that certainly will counter a lot of the um the CO two. But I think yeah, certainly my sense is um there will be big big shifts for us all. But will, um will. yeah, I mean, yeah. The flip side, it's can you tell people you're limited to fly certain times a year? So for example, you and I. Um, you know, we, we, you know, our, our ancestors weren't born in this country. So if someone said to me, you aren't allowed to go into your family more than twice a year, mm. is, that, is, that, is that fair? Why, why, why is that fair? Yeah. And so, yeah, there's a moral question there as well, right? Um, but there is a balance and there will be a balance. Yeah. Um, and it's just how we, how heavy-handed we go about that balance. Yeah. It's not going away. The question's not going to go away, is it? It's going to probably get worse and worse. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And so I guess um, moving away sort of from, from climate change now, we and you sort of had hinted to different locations you'd been to that was beautiful and, and that, you know, are really worth seeing. I'm curious to know, obviously you've been to, you've probably flown to most places probably by now in, in your career. I'm very curious to know where's the most beautiful, idyllic place that you've been to that you were just like, oh my word, this is a real treasure and gem. Um, so this can sound really boring, but actually... Culturally, Europe is the best place, best continent I've ever seen. We, we have one of the best histories in the world. You know, we've got more history than the Americas. Um, I think places like you know Scandinavia, Helsinki, Austria, particularly Vienna, is one of the most beautiful cities I've ever seen. I thoroughly recommend that anyone go in there. Um, scenically, you know, again, we've got big mountains in Europe as well, right? So um, uh, I think overall, as boring as it sounds, I think place that I've, the places I've enjoyed the most have been Europe. Um, and that's really dull. I'm sorry about that. But, um, no, no, yeah, this is your account. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, you know, because when you go to some parts of the world, you know, what, what really do you see? Uh, I think there's sometimes a misconception that further's better, if that makes sense. Further's yeah, it does. It is sometimes, but it's not always, right? Uh, but then there are a lot of parts of the world that haven't been seen. So, you know, the, the part, like, for example, New Zealand is the most beautiful place on earth, and that is the other side of the earth. So, yeah, it's, uh, there are a lot of places I'd like to go and see. But, um, Based on my 11 years so far, Europe is winning. Wow. And that's a bit embarrassing because I should be able to say, you know, far east or South America or, you know, somewhere in the far stretch of Asia somewhere. But um, maybe when I, when I see the whole lot, maybe, maybe I'll change that. Well, we'll have to update the podcast then, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? Where, where's, where's the nicest place you've been? Oh, to? it's a very good question. Um, I. 
I'm holding out for, I, I just know I'm going to adore New Zealand because I've seen so many pictures and it really is on my top list of places. Um, my top list, where would I say, is just very beautiful. Again, I think Canada will be the same, but I've not been there. Um, but thinking of places that I've actually been to, I think you're right. I think, I, I love Italy and I think there's certain parts of Italy that I think are very beautiful. Um, and I, th- I think you're right, actually. I do, I do agree with you. We're often very keen to go on these long haul flights thinking, further away is better um but i think there is a lot of beauty in in europe um certainly i can sort of think of sort of visiting sort of nice and um sort of can as a region i mean all of that that's quite beautiful um italy's lovely i mean i love indian being of indian heritage i always think it's it's a beautiful country for more than just beauty you know culturally rich etc so i mean i think it's a hard question i think each you have to appreciate its uniqueness and it's not everything what, what will be it is, yeah. exactly and not almost be like oh it's akin to you know x place but um i yeah. feel i feel like there's so much to travel and i think we're in our youth where we kind of want to capture it but obviously perhaps can't can't as fully as as we might otherwise but um we shall see we shall see we'll have to be using our, our holiday very well going forward yes. um but i'm curious to sort of um sort of loop back to what we were speaking about about kind of the demands of the job and sort of it being quite physically grueling obviously it, it plays a huge you know I know that you guys must have quite intense sort of vision tests and mm. um, fitness presumably tests and, and you know making sure that you're you're operating as well as you can but then that sort of com- sort of on on the flip kind of competing with you know your circadian rhythm and the lack of sleep that you might be um, exposed to in the job and you know I guess I can only really describe it again to probably what a doctor would be doing, you know, where you're working against your natural body clock. I'm just curious to know, kind of from your first-hand experience, how do you make fitness and sort of your physical and mental health a, a big part of your life? Um, yeah, I mean, it's very good. Doctors are the only job I can kind of compare, compare mine to um, for many reasons. One is, is the shit work. Um, the second is, you know, you make decisions based on the job, not based on when you want to make it. it, it the job dictates to do things you can't say I want to come back and find this and do all this um, yeah so for me the way I look at it is if you were to design a job that's really bad for you it would be mine um, everything about it is wrong and I know it's terrible and literally everything about it is wrong um, whether it be the UV so for every thousand feet you go up in the atmosphere UV goes up by 7% and we're flying at 41,000 feet um, whether it be that whether it be you know flying your circadian rhythms have two points of low so you, you tend to get tired around three in the afternoon after you've had lunch at three o'clock in the morning they're what they call wind up circadian mode so every flight I do coming back from the US I'm awake from about nine till about nine the next morning so literally the worst point in your circadian rhythm um, throwing to that you have to eat on a flight so I'm now eating bad food at a bad time I'm drinking a lot of caffeine to keep me awake um, and it, it is tough you know it's really tough and then touching the mental health really good, there's, especially on short, you might only be in a hotel for 18 hours, and a lot of the time people are tired, so you're in a room for 18 hours, and it's difficult because a lot of people are like, obviously, you're all away from home, you're all over home. Um, and it's quite tough to manage that. Mm. And I think you do need to find your own ways of dealing with it, and you need to understand you know, the consequences of certain substances, whether it be alcohol, caffeine, um, on your time, time off down room. Um, and it's difficult. I think a lot of people actually do it by trial and error. I generally think they wait till they're absolutely exhausted. And think okay, that was a bad idea, or you know, I'm on the verge of having to I'll wait that again. And, and it's tough, and it is it's a very, very tough job in that space. Mm. Um, uh, I think I've heard once the average age for a pilot is 70, as in when they died, obviously, um, given the retirement age of 65. 
it's not particularly good, right? Um, but it, you can only, only mitigate that to a certain extent because the job's the way the job is, right? You, you have to fly when people want to fly. So it's, uh, it's a tough one. It's a very tough one. But you've got to make sure, what I learned very early on is that on your days off, you actually have to look after yourself, which is very frustrating because I don't want to have to look after myself and speak you know, really well and do all these things on my days off. I want to go and have fun on my days off, but you mm. can't. So I do that. I'm straight back into work and that kind of again. So I do all my next days off and I have slept properly for about two weeks. Right? So it's, uh, you have to be quite responsible quite grown up. Uh, mm, I can appreciate um, that. Yeah, and exercise is the same thing. You've got to get the exercise in when you can. It's very easy just to come back and be like, I'll be awake for five hours on the internet now. And you know, you've really got to force yourself out of your comfort zone and what you want to do. Um, and make sure you eat the right things. You know, you don't just sit there eating chocolate and crisps right along, and, which is very easy to do. Like, you know, you've been on the plane. We're sitting there as well for 10 hours. So um, it's tough, but it's, uh, I think if you don't do it, you'll, the feedback will be quite severe. So I think it's, yeah it's a great point actually it's it's one i haven't really thought about very much actually how bad it can be to to do your job and and how it sort of runs counter to what we we should be doing i'm curious to know i mean what strategies have you employed and i i you know you've sort of outlined some of them in terms of sort of having that responsibility and being an adult and going to bed in good time you know, drinking the right drinks but i'm curious to know i mean sleep is such a a pivotal one and just to perhaps focus on that obviously that's sort of one of the key three points of sort of uh, having a healthy sort of mind um body and and sort of keeping yourself um well really isn't it in addition to sort of food and food and, and exercise so I'm curious to know I mean I, I certainly find myself exhausted you know come you know seven eight o'clock I'm just yawning and you know that's you know without even doing you know the sort of job that you guys are doing so I'm curious to know how do how do you how do you trick your body or, or is the trick to not trick your body? How do you actually practically do it? I, I think the key is to understand everyone's circadian room is different. So mm. I, I call it night owls. So I get to bed at two or three o'clock in the morning most evenings and wake up a bit later than most people do. Um, I think the key is A, to know your body, but also you need to know the things that, how your lifestyle affects your sleep. Does that make sense? So there are very, very easy changes you can make. So caffeine, for example. Um, most people don't realise that the half-life of caffeine, which is time it takes for half the active substance, which is caffeine and coffee, seven hours. So it takes seven hours for half the caffeine to be digested. So if you think about it, if you're having coffee after two, three o'clock, it's keeping you awake. Yeah. So easy change, I won't have a coffee at seven o'clock at night. Simple. Um, things like alcohol, alcohol stops you sleeping. So maybe if you're tired, don't drink alcohol. Um, mobile phones, mobile phones pick you up, pick you up, natural light keeps you up. You know, looking at your mobile phone, which is yours, your uh, meditator release back by three hours. So if you go to bed at 11, you go to your phone, it's actually 8 o'clock and you're morning So knowing things like that, and they're very easy changes, and they're free, right? They're completely free. Um, just, you know, small things like that, you've just got to understand how sleep works and how you work. Yeah. Um, there, there aren't things that you can never change, obviously, but um, I think if you just, you know, again, med- not med- meditation for some people, you know, headspace, those kind of things, try to remove stress, you know, going to the gym is great, it clears your head. Put yourself in a position where you can sleep. Um, because, as I said, if you don't, it's very bad. And in my job, especially, they, they've done loads of studies and long-haul pilots' brains shrink over time because they're always so tired to sleep, sleep um, not, not having sleep is so bad for you. Um, you know, water content's lower, you know, incidences of cancer goes up, heart attack goes up, and that's yeah. you need to, But again, you know, our industry has been around for so long. For all this, you know, we're very lucky we're born at a time where we have this knowledge. Mm. Now, a lot of people didn't have this knowledge, and so you know, now we know about it. Um, it's up to us to do, you know, use it, deal with it appropriately, right? Yeah, no, and I think that's that's absolutely right. But but it is curious because I guess for the job that you guys are doing, where 
you know, better performance will be valued, more energy, better coordination, faster speed, that mental sort of functioning ability. All of these are prized and necessary in your job. So it's quite curious that actually the industry, and I don't know how, I don't know what the answer to this is. So I guess I'm curious to know, given you're right, it's existed as it has for, for many, many years. I don't know how, how would they change it to make it better for you guys is it is it possible to, to sort of have I, I think i think some things aren't possible so like i was saying you know you can't design long haul flights away outside of your circadian rhythm it's just impossible because the world is 24 hours and you know people don't want to get to their destination at the other time of the day just because your wishes time that makes sense your body's a richest time um they, they, they you know that employees are good they they have systems in place they, they try to educate you about sleep so that's now the new thing sleep stress you know mental health is big and they, they have avenues to sort of people get advice from people and stuff like that but again the biggest thing is being outside of your body clock and that will never change sounds mm-hmm. is that that's that's just so in my right because they and i've heard this where and i guess you do it even as a passenger that they say mm-hmm. for you to so say you're going to india let's just say India are what five hours oh, ahead yeah, of us, ahead. five five and a half hours ahead. So let's just say we're doing this podcast. Let's just call it eight pm, and we would get to India. Let's just say early morning. The idea would be to then go straight to bed and then wake up and then sort of you you you. The the idea is that you should be going and being up or going to sleep at the time of the the, the country or the place you're in right now. Is that right? Uh, so it's the opposite. So you oh, want to sleep opposite. on your body clock. Your body clock, okay. Yeah, well, it depends. So for us, it's different because we go and come back in like a day or two next. So obviously, if you're going on holiday, you adapt to. And for us, if, I mean, if you want to make it the best way possible to minimise your sleep consumption, you try to get rid of all jet lag and wait till that is to stay in your body clock because jet lag is just a disruptive body. Fine. So maybe it's for you guys that because I'm convinced that they've said for us like, but you're right. We were going to stop, have a holiday. So actually, we should be on their clock to to yes. keep it but for you guys it's yes. the opposite got you but, but it's impossible to do because you, know, <laughs> you get to america like obviously at three o'clock i mean it's three o'clock in the afternoon i'm gonna go to bed no. I mean, the lights are on it's you know you want to go out you want to have something to eat or whatever you don't just and i, I, I don't know many people that do stay on uk time because it's actually impossible you, you never have a life down there no because by the time you get up it's now two o'clock in the morning in america it's shut. You know I mean? so you, you've got to kind of there's, again there's a balance right there's a balance to be made yeah. between absolutely gosh it's a tough call and and i guess it would be good to sort of to to understand obviously like like you and i know you know you were in chicago earlier this week uh, and you were there for a few days you hopefully got to do some sightseeing is that is that normally the way it works now that you're obviously doing more long-haul flights as opposed to sort of the easy jet training sort of stuff where you were kind of bang 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 yeah. Well, it's, it's your time, you, you do as you wish. Um, we're, we're very lucky that we do stay predominantly in city hotels, so you're right in the city, right in the action. America's really good, and there's so much to do, so many museums. Um, same with India, you know, when we get to Bangalore, we're very close to the city centre, they've got all the brilliant kind of buildings and castles and stuff. Um, but again, it's a balance, you don't want to knock yourself out and then get picked up, and then you're up again for another 14 hours before you get home. Mm. So, because um, it's a drive home as well, a lot of people have crashed driving home because you think, oh, I'm fine. And then you land and you're like, okay, and then you relax. And people literally are just driven into dishes, ditches, crashing some the girls in front of them. So you've got to think about your entire journey from to get to your house because you're still driving. You might not drive a plane, but you're still driving the road, right? And as you know, driving the road, you, you wouldn't drive, you know, after a few drinks or you know, exhausted, would you? And it's the same thing goes for us. So you've almost got to think 15 hours ahead of where you're going to be. Wow. And it's a bit, it's a bit annoying, but again, that's, 
Look, you can't do anything about like, You either change our body parts or change airline schedules, and I can't see. Can't see either of those happening. Yes, indeed. No, exactly. <laughs> so it's collateral for the job, right? Um, but as I said, people know about it from Major Wigan, they still do. So obviously, the rest of it must outweigh that. Obviously. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's certainly, I think, always seen as quite a glamorous job, and I'm sure you have that said to you all the time. But I think mm. what you've certainly shown is the realities. I mean, it, it certainly has its sort of glamorous aspects, yeah. but it's certainly. Um, it certainly is a, a job to be taken lightly with and it's actually a very serious and important and job that you have to kind of go in with your eyes wide open like you were saying sort of the with the average life expectancy being 70 a, quite a sedentary lifestyle the sort of vigorous testing and exactly as you sort of said I had heard that it can be quite um, expensive to to go on and qualify as pilot particularly if you're out you know initially sort of funding those costs so um it certainly isn't all all glamorous but it certainly has its aspects yeah. but yeah you're right it's not glamorous but well, it can be but it's not all glamour but again most jobs every job has their positives every absolutely Absolutely. and um people are still queuing through the doors to do our jobs so it's obviously something absolutely maybe it's delusion i don't know but maybe they still want to do it so it's uh yeah as i said i do yeah, I have to pinch myself sometimes when you're seeing this fantastic news of the country and you're at work and getting paid to be there it's not many jobs like that. Um, and if I did any other job, that was nice. Five, I'd probably find something bad about that as well, right? So every, every job's got this downside. So you might as well just you know, take the good stuff and find a job that best suits you overall, right? I think so. I think so. And I guess with that in mind, it would be great to sort of know what are your best memories. You know, you've done this job 11 years. You've uh, yeah, undoubtedly seen so much. Um, lived through also a time of you know, huge upheaval and sort of increased regulation you know as we were sort of speaking about earlier with sort of 9-11 and more sort of terrorism threats covid will be another thing climate change will be another thing um you know you're 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 really seeing a very different journey to perhaps your counterparts 20 30 years ago so i'm curious to know you know that aside what are the best memories that you've got um that's tough on best memories uh i think it's kind of generic memories it's it's the people that you meet because you fly mm. with different people every day so imagine every day you're meeting friends so and then you're going out and run your sense of people and you get to know around your sense of people. And also, you know, when you go across the world and you do get to explore without even realizing it, other people, other cultures, um, even from the passengers that come on your plane. You know, we're a British airline, but we have passengers from all over the world of different cultures, different beliefs. And you get to experience those sometimes, sometimes not in a good way, sometimes in a really good way. And I think the best memories is you just see things differently. You see things from other people's point of view. You see, you, you know, you see just so many different things you see events sports events across the world like cltv you get to go to you get to do all these kind of things that you wouldn't experience otherwise um and i think for me that still is probably better than the nights out better that makes sense for the limits i wouldn't give that bit up no matter how bad it is so um i think it's it's, it's a unique job it's definitely a unique job. Mm. um how long it will stay in this current format i don't know but it's uh it's definitely a job i'm, I'm still doing it anyway so yeah. i haven't gone back to genetics just yet so it's obviously doing something like yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do think, you know, when you think about it quite quite boldly, you know, aviation really does represent the very best of mankind. You know, it's like this aluminium sort of going through the, you know, uh, going through uh, the sky, you know, and it, you kind of look at it and with this sky, you know, and I, I still feel it, you know, every time I go to Heathrow, I kind of get really excited, right? Hmm. Just, it's you know, it's, it's an incredible moment to just see that intelligent creativity which I think also exemplifies the wonder of the human brain and what it can achieve, right? So yeah, I mean, absolutely. If from a technological point of view, it's phenomenal. Like if, you, if we don't think about it, we get on planes sometimes like buses, but you now you're getting this massive three hundred ton metal object and you're getting into the sky and 
as long as you obey the laws of physics it stays there and you think that's incredible I mean, you can imagine it, even going back 200 years, if people sort of played in the sky, they think it was you know, sent from the heavens, right? There's this theme just flying around in the sky, and it's, uh, yeah, it's right. It's, it's an incredible feat of technology, and they, you know, Airbus and Boeing, they both have the best minds in the world, whether it be at thermodynamics or aerodynamics, and, and it is, it's impressive. And it's very impressive how the industry is so safe and how the industry has got so many, you know, checks and balances in it um, to make sure that people are floating around the world safely. Absolutely. Uh, and it's as an industry, you're right, it's incredible, and it connects the world. Yeah, absolutely connects the world. We can. You know, one of my best friends lives in Singapore, and I can go there and go. I'll be there tomorrow. I'll be there for the weekend and come back. You know, 20, 30 years ago, no one would say I would there. It's nothing. So it's um, it's doing a lot of good for us. I think. So um, so true. Yeah, there's out there's downsides to it, but I think it's uh, it's changed the world. I think for the better. Yeah, and I think you're right. We we are living in such an interconnected world, and you know, COVID's a good example of that, right? From one border yeah. to another, you know, a virus won't think, oh, okay, I'll stop at the uh, the British borders. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so I, I think that's a very very true point. We are we are so interconnected and are one essentially. Um, so that's that's really that's really interesting that you also share that that um that thought process i guess you know we've we've spoken a little bit about um the um you, you sort of mentioned the physics aspects and i'm gonna mention i mean if you could kind of bust a couple of myths about sort of turbulence and you know yeah. how 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 do it how does it work the gps how do we end up you know magically to these destinations talk to us a bit about you know maybe let's do turbulence first is turbulence scary? How does it come about? What is it? It would be good to just best to cover so, the, the worries. All, all turbulence is, when, when you're near, you fly, fly in the air, right? and there's wind in the air, and turbulence is just a change in the direction of the strength of the wind. So imagine if I was just pushing you from behind gently, and then I started to change the way I pushed you, you would rock. That's exactly what happens. So the wind changes the speed of direction. Um, it, it does appear very scary, very dramatic, but it's not. It's just the way the atmosphere is. Um, I completely understand why people are scared, and I've had some very nervous flyers come up to us, um, and they were scared of this thing called turbulence. Um, I think if anyone is scared of turbulence, two things I say: I say statistically, you're more likely to die getting to the airport than you are on any plane. Um, so when people say I'm really scared of flying, I've said you've done the most dangerous part of your journey, so it's okay. Um, and you know, they talk about the genius of engineering. The wings are tested to extremes. You know, they they actually you can find these they call the wing tests on you know we go on YouTube, and they basically put the G-Lo, because when, when you're in turbulence, G-Lo wins increases. And they're designed, so I think it's the worst known turbulence ever recorded, and they have to sustain 50% more of that. And what they do is they bend them, and you can see them, and literally, they can go up to like that. Because they don't have to the wings do that, and they can actually almost wrap the wings around before they snap. So this whole, the whole everything about the aircraft is designed for the environment that it's in. Um, so turbulence, again, I know why, I don't understand why it's scary, but it's it's just, it's just part of, you know, it's part of the atmosphere you're in. Um, so I say don't be boring about terms. I get it, you know, things flying everywhere and there's trolleys going everywhere and things going over tea going everywhere. But it's short lived most of the time. Um and pilots generally do the best they can to get around it or get out of it if they can. Um so it's uh yeah, like I said, I see why it's scary but it's not it's not like You're never gonna you know, the plane's yeah. never gonna just go <laughs> all the way down. As long as you it. sit back down and put your seatbelt on we tell you the And there's a reason why we do that, so it's uh and what about sort of when you're when you're flying? Obviously, there's the pilot, and then there's a person next to next to the pilot. What 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 role do you both sort of do in tandem? So yeah, so I'm, I'm a first officer, so I'm kind of the junior of the two of us. Um, so it's first officer, and eventually I'll become captain, hopefully. Um, so aircraft are designed in multi-crew. I'm not saying that during my trade, it's all single pilot operations. So imagine aircraft are designed for two people. 
So every flight, each of us has a different role. So for example, if I'm doing the take up London on this flight, I'll have my set of roles and he'll have, or she will have their set of roles. Um, and then you kind of come together and interact in that way. And then the next flight, we might switch. So you're always doing something in your own kind of section. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's here, and they're called SOP, Standard Operating Procedures, and there's a bookload of them. You have to remember them all, and what to do when, and what to say when. Um, and again, very well designed. It's, you know, it's, it's designed by geniuses in different countries who look at us, look at our psychology, how we act, and say, to get this outcome, we want you to do this and say this. Um, and you've got freedom within it how you do that, but it's all our score orientated. We want to achieve this, and therefore we do this. Um, and then we've all got our roles as the camera crew. You know, Absolutely, absolutely. And it's definitely a topic I want to speak to you about, about kind of how you all work together as a team. But before I do, I guess my last final question was about uh, sort of GPS and how we magically get transported from here to Dubai, to India, to Sri Lanka, wherever it might be. Okay, so um, they've got uh, way up on, way, way, way up in the uh, in space, they've got different constellations of satellites. So they've got, each country has their own their own kind of satellite GPS American system. Um, I think European systems called Galileo after Italian scientists Galileo. And they have different layers in the atmosphere. So actually if you go in space, you can actually see these satellites. What they do is they we log on to one of them, if that makes sense, and we have the option of going to several ones. Um, but we use a system, it could be the American system, the Russian, the Chinese, whatever. Um, and it basically just tells us like a car does, it says this is where we are, this is where we're going. And it's very, very accurate. Um, you know, we fly directly underneath other aircraft. So the position of those EPS and ours is literally on top of each other, which is incredible. So we could be in the middle of nowhere. Yet our navigation systems are pushing us basically on top of each other. If you think about it, it's absolutely, again, it's phenomenal, isn't it? Um, yeah, so that's uh, modern technology. Um, and before that, they had other systems before that's arrived, but still very good. Um, and now we can do everything. We can do approaches to satellites and take us to the runway. I think they got there within two meters, something like that. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's, it's insane absolutely incredible um but again that's you need that because you need to have that level of accuracy to take people across the world you can't have aircraft going in random directions and end up in new zealand when they're trying to get to america etc so um it's just the industry again it's 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 always steps up with technology they're the first to have the technology um the navigational systems are really incredible they are generally incredible even if you're kind you can go in your car you can get them anywhere you want assuming there's not a sea in the way it's anywhere else on earth because of the satellite and you're thing. you're literally just, following it like a driver would. So like you're turning it to be like, right, it's saying go left now, and that's you. All, it's all automated. Kind of yeah. So it's um, we kind of um, we have these motorways in the air. They're called um, airways. So they're like you know it'd be like you saying to get from here to there, just drive for a field or something, you drive M twenty five, M four, M one, and there are these motorways in the sky. It's the same thing. We will go from one airway to another because the airway goes that way, and then we might go to another one. Um, and the satellites basically puts us on those airways. Um, what's incredible when you're when, it, when the skies are busy, as you can see airlines, aircraft stacked up, and that's how accurate things are. You can almost go straight underneath something. You can, if it's shallow, it can pretty much be on your aircraft because you're that wide. Um, and it's, it's, it's incredible. It's, wow. um, it's, it's amazing. It's, uh, I bet you so, still have a bit of an adrenaline when you still uh, are there, hey? Yeah, I do sometimes. Yeah, it's um, as I said, sometimes jobs can get a bit boring because you're doing so much to them, but mine, it is definitely a case of no, this is not usual this is not average this is very very much different and and again you know one day you know, it could be my last flight I, mean, I could lose my medical hopefully it won't happen yeah, um, sure. sometimes i've got to take every you know flight is actually it's incredible appreciate it for what it is right? and i think that's a message of life isn't it just live it it is yeah, yeah. you know if you're kind of it's anything it's you know don't take anything for granted even going to the pub 
right? So, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's good. It's good one. No, absolutely. And I guess, uh, you know, I, I said we'd speak about it and it would be good to sort of know, obviously, I, again, so much we've learned this evening, I, I didn't fully appreciate, or I guess I'd never taken a moment to contemplate what you were saying about actually being a pilot is a real mix of, you know, physics and math, but also mm. really having good social skills. Like you said, you're interacting with different uh, people in your team, different crew members um, as teamwork. Uh, involved speaking and being quite courteous to sort of the, the public so I'm curious to know how how have you experienced or how have you um how do you feel uh you developed those skills I guess as you've sort of progressed through your career because uh, I guess it probably takes a more extrovert person I'd say maybe uh, to perhaps get on get on board and, and develop that but I'm curious to know that might be a bit controversial but I'm curious to know what do you think so this is a quick, quick backstory to innovation. So it used to be a case of um, what they call stick and rubber skills, so the physical skills and hand-eye coordination, the maths, the physics, you know, and physically flying aircraft, how good is your, you know, all this kind of stuff, your spatial awareness, etc. Um, and for a very long time, that was assumed to be the most important thing about flying. Um, in the same way when you drive a car, that you probably think they're the most important things about driving is your ability to, you know, see other people coming out and, you know, anticipate things. Um, and what they noticed is that as the technology was getting better, um, and as engineering was getting better, as theory, everything was getting better, air traffic control, everything, um, planes were still crashing. And the thing that was constant was that it was always 80% of the time it was the pilot's fault. So no matter how good the technology got, no matter how good the automation got, pilots were still crashing 80% of the time. What they realized in the 70s, and this was a project done with NASA, as in the NASA, the um, space exploration company, um, that something else was going on here. And what they realized is that it wasn't about how we were interacting with the machine, it was about how we were interacting with each other. And they introduced this concept for crew resource management, I don't know if you've heard of it, uh, medics use it as well. Uh, and it's essentially about, it sounds really basic, but essentially how do you talk to people within a, within a group and how do you foster an open communication? And the thing about our job, because we have ranks, there's a chance for a lot of quite steep authority gradients to come in. Sure. Or they were noticing that there were times when people would say, you know, I would rather crash than question the captain. You see a lot in certain cultures. And it happened. There has been a crash in Stansted where it's Korean airline that the first officer sat there while the plane crashed because he didn't want to pick up the captain on something to do it. And obviously that's completely unacceptable. Um, and so they brought in this thing called career resource management about how to interact with the whole group to overall get a better outcome for the flight. Um, and so we actually have lessons. We have, you know, things on this called one of my modules flying was all about, you know, career resource management, a tool to use and and it all ties into those things with like emotional intelligence, not just intellectual intelligence, or IQ, sorry, EQ, not IQ. Um, and that's a huge part of my job. And actually the hardest part of my job is in the machines because the laws of physics and maths are very predictable. You know, I put this number here, it will come out that same number in time. It's dealing with people. Um, and that is without a doubt the hardest part because people are unpredictable, whereas machines isn't the laws of physics and maths, right? Um, and I think that's possibly the hardest thing because when you tie into that cultural sensitivity as well, which you might not even know about business, um, and that part of how to get an entire crew, because there could be 15 of you, and you've got to get an entire crew on site, even though they might not want to, they might not see things from your point of view. And using that is definitely more difficult than anything else. Ironically, because my job is fine, but you always become a man. You are a manager as well, right? You're a manager in the sky. So it's, um, it's, it's interesting. But to answer your first question, how do you, it's a lot that's learned. You know, we all, you know, a lot of people into my job, I was 25, you know, you learn. As you go older, as you do with society, right? Certain things aren't acceptable to say, or maybe I put it this way, or you know, just slamming my fist down to mine, and this isn't right. You learn how to manage people, you learn how to get around people, um, and it's it's a skill. It is a skill. A lot of people don't have it. 
for some reason, whatever reason. Um, it's definitely something that can be learned, that can be learned, should be learned, because it gets, it, without doubt, gets the best out of people. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it, it, it's a, it, again, it's a point that people probably underestimate that you guys really have to have, uh, be able to pick up uh, just like that and be so tapped into it. But I think also it's doubly difficult with, the, like you were saying, cultural sensitivities, which will be so different. Uh, and I'm curious to know, I mean, do you have examples that you can maybe give our listeners as to where you can really demonstrate the value of having this EQ come to the fore? Um. Yeah, I, I guess it's about managing people. So I don't know if it's but um, on a on a plane, for example, to Tel Aviv, Jewish men aren't or don't want to be served by women who are at certain times of lunch, obviously. So they will ask them literally the question. They will say, "Are you menstruating?" And uh, if I didn't tell you that, and someone asked that, you'd probably have asked that. Right? You'd be like, "That's absolutely unreal." Um, and you have to get around those sensitivities somehow because you've got your own group, right? You've got people. So there are ways of doing it, saying, can we rejig the group, for example, where it's the men that are doing the service, maybe not the women, the women can do the other things. And as bad as that is, how are you going to change that, right? You can't say, we're not getting on the plane. So get to the passage. You can't say, well, I'm going to have to get off because you know, you've got this thing. Um, there are many just, just things like that. And also people, certain cultures are a lot more abrupt and quite polite as we're you know, being Brits, and a lot of people just don't say please, don't say thank you. Um, so you've got to kind of explain to people why that's not them being rude just because we take it as rude doesn't mean yeah it's rude. You know, a lot of people accuse us of being over polite don't they? which yeah. i don't think we are but a lot of people think we are um so just just small things like that so like i want water now it's like well no and you know you, you, don't, you don't react in the way that you would if i said that to you you have to react in the way that they are thinking so you have to put yourself in their position of what are they saying and what are they thinking when they ask me this and whilst it might be offensive to you they don't mean it yeah. Um, and it's tough. It's really, really tough. And it's like a brick in the place sometimes. And luckily, we don't deal with it because we're not camp crew. But some of the stories you hear are incredible. I mean, it's like, it's like people just like click on my waiters, or you know, the girls are just getting grabbed because that's what people do. And you've got to be really kind of, you know, it's really, it's a very thin line. It's very difficult. Mm. But again, what do you do? You can't, you can't, you can't tell people on a plane your culture's wrong. Like, you can't just say like, and you can't just say. You know, so you kind of got to work around there, especially when tempers fell up and it was out on them. Um, you've really got it's a very, very fine line between making it worse and making it better. Because at the end of the day, you're still in charge, we're still in charge of the planes, we have to keep that, we have to keep that gradient. Um, but you know, it's, it's just again, it's just part of the job, and, and but it's the most difficult part of the job because they're so computers, they listen to you, you know, you can't, you can't, computers don't like you back to them, um, whereas people do. So it's um, again, it's just another skill, it's just another skill set. Most jobs have different skill sets, right? Mm. Um, like you as a lawyer, your job isn't just doing what you think of the basic law and you know, reading the cases. You have to have that element yourself. So you have to have a high level of EQ and mentality, particularly if you're front facing in the court. Mm. Um, it's just it's just a skill which we need. You know, I think it's as important as technical skills, um, and we're coming to realise that as well, right? Absolutely. No, I I 100% agree that I think EQ and they say that don't they that those that have an IQ it's great and that's sort of your base mm. but the EQ over time you know the best leaders have a really high EQ um, and I think it's 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 true of life isn't it that the more we're able to understand people relate to them mm. and even if we don't understand it sort of putting ourselves in their shoes and, and I think you're right for the most majority of people I would like to think they aren't doing it to be rude or insensitive it's just mm. what what they think or is perhaps you know culturally acceptable to them and we're all conditioned beings as well right so we're all going to come at it from a from our perspective but of course you will get those that are 
you know just being really disrespectful and trying their luck or whatever and you know for some reason I think the altitude gets to their head and they sort of <laughs> yeah. sort of change yeah, absolutely you know and then it, it also our stress environments so a lot of people you're getting people in an environment they're sticking in a pressurized tube in you know for a lot of people in the seat which is like this and you know off you go and they're 300 people out they've never met you know some people are rude some people brash people you lose their you know spatial awareness they might not be into people and you know intensely flying and it's um yeah, it's, it's a tough one to deal with. Uh, mm-hmm. But you're right, you know, EQ, it's, uh, I think what you're referring to those, 90% of business leaders have a high EQ, but only 40% have a high IQ. Um, people with a high EQ, ironically, do better on academic tests, which completely flies in the face of logic, because you think Absolutely. they'd have to have a high IQ. Absolutely. Um, I just think it's like these things in society, when we discover them, we realise over time how important they are. Um, and I think EQ and IQ are really like that. Sometimes people think you have to have one time the other, or, you know, very well in tandem with each other. Watch this space and see see what science comes up next. I completely agree. I completely agree. Well, I think on that note, I think we'll uh, we'll leave it there. Um, but thank you, Rohan, very very much for coming on and talking to us at Primrose Light and sharing, I think, quite an accurate depiction of actually the 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 good and the bad, uh, and perhaps the ugly for 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 those that get a little bit mean on on flights. But uh, as I normally do, I normally have lots of quotes, but I've only got one this evening, uh, and that's a, a beautiful quote by Leonardo da Vinci, which says. Once you have tasted flight, you will forever walk the earth with your eyes turned skyward. For there you have been, and there you will always long to return. And I thought that was a nice quote to end on. Thank but uh, it's probably one. It's probably one you've heard before, uh, Rohan. But uh, it, it seems the first QA days, right? He wrote. He did a, a protocol of a helicopter or a wing, and they actually made a flight. Oh. Okay. Um, so you know he was 15th century, and they actually took his copy, and they it worked the laws of physics. Absolutely genius for you. There we go. Well, thank you. I didn't know that. But thank you so much for coming on and giving us your valuable time. Thank you for keeping us safe uh, when we're all flying. And um, yeah, it's a real shame we can't come in. And I feel like now if I could go back into the cockpit, I could I could put into learning some of the stuff you've shared. But uh, never mind. We'll, uh, we'll have to... We'll have to use a virtual simulator or something, but thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much once again. And everyone, I hope you've enjoyed listening. And until next time, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to speaking then. But keep safe otherwise. Take care. God bless. Bye.